So I think we're ready to get started. Uh, I first want to thank all of you for coming in. I know these sessions are not easy to get into, and uh, sometimes you've got to wait, wait in line. And I'm super impressed all of you are sitting together like this, like it's a Southwest Airlines flight. Um, so uh, thanks a lot for doing that. Um, I wanted to int introduce myself. And Joey, do you mind going to the next slide? Uh, my name is Misha Goffstein. I'm uh, one of the co-founders at a company called uh, AlertLogic and uh, currently SVP of product. I've uh, been doing a lot of functions at the company for many years. I was the chief technology officer, ran threat intelligence. Uh, company actually started in my spare bedroom. Um, you know, there's a myth that companies get started in a garage, but uh, it's just Texas, so nothing gets started in a garage. I said, <laughs> we, we, we start companies in air-conditioned buildings. Too hot in the garage. Th that's right. So I've um, been with AlertLogic since day one, and it's been a, a pretty wild ride uh, at this point where uh, secure uh, over 4,000 customers. Um, a whole lot of them are on AWS. Uh, some of them are on other cloud environments. Uh, we've been watching the cloud journey uh, for many years and have a lot to share with you in terms of experiences. But I also wanted to introduce Joey uh, from Citrix. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for being here today. I'm really excited about this. Uh, I've been speaking for a number of years, but usually to just security crowds. So I'm really stoked about being here. Um, I head up cloud security operations and architecture for Citrix, uh, and I'm going to share a lot of anecdotes and a lot of lessons learned about our painful journey to the cloud, and hopefully you guys can learn from our mistakes. So before we get started, uh, one quick announcement for you. Uh, I'm sure you noticed that um, there was an envelope on your seat. If you didn't notice, you're probably sitting on one of these envelopes, so uh, it's, it's there. Um, what you'll find there is um, what our team called the Misha Moolah. This is my own uh, currency issue. Um, there's good news and there's bad news. First, the good news is it's much more liquid than Bitcoin, so you can actually exchange this for real money. Uh, if you stop by our booth uh, 1222 uh, at the Venetian, hand this over to somebody in the booth, they'll give you a, a $250 infrastructure credit. You can spend it on anything you want. So uh, it, is, uh, it does provide a certain sense of liquidity. The bad news is it will self-destruct as soon as this conference is over. So uh, you got to stop by the booth and trade it in pretty quickly. So um, a little bit about what we're going to cover uh, in this session. Um, so I wanted to spend a few minutes, and we're going to go through this session uh, fairly quickly, um, speaking about culture. And I think it is important to understand why we're all here, what we mean by DevOps, because I do think the definition has shifted. Ultimately, the preview of the real answer for what we mean by DevOps is um, who cares, right? Uh, it doesn't really matter what the formal definition is, but it does matter what we're trying to accomplish. We do need to be very clear about what the objective is, and I think on that front, I'm starting to see signs that not everybody is always aligned, and that's actually a big theme of what Joey and I are going to talk about. It's about the relationship that DevOps has with uh, enterprise IT, with developers, whether these teams actually like each other. Uh, I think to kind of avoid the pitfalls of, uh, of uh, traditional enterprise IT, we got to start think doing things in a different way. That was the reason why cloud adoption surged so quickly. So I'll show you some of the drivers and some of the thoughts we have behind it. We're going to switch gears after that and talk about uh, Blueprint driven approach to, approach to security. I think that's one organizing framework you can bring back to your organization and actually use in your environments to kind of get everybody on the same page. Ultimately, you should be speaking from facts and you should be, be able to, and facts are fairly objective and uh, opinions don't matter nearly as much. And if you can 
construct an organizing framework like this. And you know, we use this blueprint model very successfully at Alert Logic, have helped a lot of customers put it in place. There's other ways to get it done. What's most important is that you don't have three teams talking about three different objectives trying to meet in the middle. That never actually works, right? And finally, we're going to close out, and I'm going to, we're going to try to get to that portion of the, of the presentation fairly quickly with lessons from Citrix. Uh, uh, Joey's been leading the charge on, on DevOps uh, adoption there for, how long have you been at Citrix, Joey? Three years. Yeah, three years. So um, have a lot of lessons in place. We're going to help you understand kind of what the maturity model um, uh, looks like. Um, and I think that's, it's agnostic about what kind of organization you are. Uh, you'll be able to place yourself in it. And I, you know, Joey and I will be pretty transparent with you about where we believe our organizations are. Alert Logic is not just a cloud um, workload provider. We don't just secure um, cloud workloads, but we also are a major cloud user. Um, in, in fact, we were one of the major case studies for S3 and other, other AWS services. We have a DevOps uh, or, um, organization and culture internally, so we're not just a, I'm not just the president, I'm also a, a, a user of this club. So um, have a, um, somebody remembers the Hair Club for Men uh, ads. <laughs> one um, guy. <laughs> Uh, there'll be more references to late 90s uh, uh, pop culture uh, later on. Um, so I, I think there's lessons to be drawn from that, right? Uh, so let's, let's get through it, right? Uh, first of all, um, what drives cloud adoption? Um, I think ultimately it's the developers that are driving cloud adoption. I think it would be helpful to understand um, kind of how this room breaks down. Um, how many people in this room are developers? So that's about a third. How about people involved in various forms of operations, right? Uh, so that's a little bit more than a third. How about p security? Holy crap, wow. that's a lot of security people. Nice. So, but, but, but look, this mix is actually very different than the mix we saw in this room uh, just as recently as three years ago. Uh, I've been at every reInvent conference since the first conference they had, and uh, I've always asked this question. Um, look, in all honesty, and I consider myself a security person, so it's okay, for, it's okay for me to say that, we weren't always invited to the party, right? Uh, we weren't always here. We weren't always at the table. First couple of years that we uh, helped a lot of our customers um, get their cloud deployment secured, the reason we were there is because their security team said no. That's a pretty standard answer from, uh, uh, from a security team. So for a couple of years of cloud adoption, security people weren't really involved. It was a lot of developers. It was, a lot, it was some number of, uh, of people kind of classified as DevOps, but it was a lot of contention about what exactly is DevOps and, and who cares exactly. But the main objective and the reason why things were moving so fast, and I think that's still true today, is because we got to get things done faster. Ultimately, the business requires us to move faster. That means developers have to be able to drive code faster into production. And a lot of times in the past, that meant bypassing security, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that anymore, but that did mean that at one point. You might go to the next slide. So um, quick survey uh, from, uh, I think this was from last year. So this is uh, something the Forrester ran. And what they asked were, were questions about priorities. And these were really interesting, right? The, a lot of people kind of in unison said, we got to drive uh, software updates faster. A lot of people said, it's not just software, it's custom code, right? What we, our requirements can't be met with shelf, uh, with commercial uh, applications, whether they're uh, traditional apps or SaaS apps. We got to build code or we got to be able to deploy it. At the same time, 
they're believing the security, the security requirements are not actually getting diminished, they're getting more important, right? These things are um, naturally uh, um, conflict with each other, right? There's no such thing as being able to rush code into production without inheriting some level of insecurity. So that's the, that's the challenge we're seeing more and more now. As the security organization starts to get involved, people are starting to, to realize, look, should we let this uh, go into production quickly? The answer, I believe, is yes. It's about doing it the right way. So there's natural tension every time you have this even blend of developers, DevOps people, and security people in one room, right? Again, another uh, developer perspective, right? 2013, wh why did develop what were developers um, frustrated about? A lot of it was, can I actually push code into production? What does it take? Does it require a whole bunch of conference calls and, uh, and, and maintenance windows and project managers and, you know, or can I actually go do it myself? You know, fast forward to 2017, you know, 89% of developers use public cloud. I think that's an interesting number because I don't believe that's the rate of adoption uh, for cloud, right? If you ask kind of uh, AWS, have you actually broken into every enterprise on the planet or 90% of it, they'll say, no, we're not, we're not there yet, right? Where maybe they're a 50% mark, maybe it's a 40% mark, but I think it's very telling that 90% of developers actually use public cloud. That means that it's still moving very fast. Developers are still the, the tip of the spear, and that means the, the innovation power shift is really, has really moved on, right? So. Joey, thanks for driving the presentation. You got it, brother. I didn't know you were going to do this for me, but uh, I, I appreciate it. Just um, trying to contribute. So, so I think, um, so I think the the power really has been shifting towards developers, and I don't, and I don't mean to set that up as an imbalance, uh, even though it is right. In a lot of ways, we have to rewire uh, our thinking to make sure that we can enable development teams to run faster. Ideally, they shouldn't look at us as security people as an adversary. Ideally, they should look at us as allies. But I think we got to start looking at them as a customer as opposed to a subject, right? Uh, and I think for many, many years, right, security departments were very authoritative. The, you know, the answer of no was the default answer until you convince somebody. Um, we got to jump into the foxhole with them, and I think that's what we're seeing in a whole lot of environments we, uh, we come across. The DevOps culture only really works if these teams, are, uh, in fact, work together. Um, and not only that, but I think DevOps is a crucial enabler for that as, for the, for that as well. Uh, if you guys haven't seen the, um, the state of the cloud uh, and DevOps uh, survey that Sonotype runs, it's a great survey. It really helps you understand kind of how your peers are thinking about uh, the space. So if they, they kind of ask them, look, is security a major problem for you in terms of something that slows down uh, your deployments and something that slows down your innovation? In environments where DevOps was immature or nascent or not existent, the answer was kind of an emphatic yes. In places where DevOps was more mature and people were actually working together and developers were getting enabled to push code into production quickly uh, and responsibly, the answer was no. They're actually, it's not that big of a deal if you end up doing it right, right? So, so I think there is a way to get through all that pain without sacrificing security, but again, it requires some effort, right? So the big question is how, right? Uh, how do we align DevOps uh, with security? And I think in order to do that, you have to, you have to work in, in kind of a logical progression. You gotta ask the right questions. You gotta make sure that the three audiences that we have in this room, for example, are all in agreement, right? And, uh, um, and I'm not gonna ask this question, but I, but I, I see this in, uh, in the conversations I have with people daily. I don't always think that people agree, right? We, we, we meet with, with our customers, right? And, 
the teams that we meet with aren't always in agreement about what's important or even what they're protecting, right? And that leads to <coughs> major disconnect about how it should be protected in the first place, right? I mean, we see in, in environments where their stack is overwhelmingly kind of a classic three-tier web architecture. Maybe it's a lot of legacy code, but the, the big control they're arguing about is antivirus, right? I mean, that's not going to help in any way, right? So uh, that's a major disconnect between what, what your attack surface actually looks like versus what controls you're trying to implement. And that's, that gets people frustrated, right? So, um, so when I show the slide to, the, to our AWS handlers, you know, every time you do a presentation with Amazon, they always want to make sure that it's clean. That's the reason there's flowers on these <laughs> firearms. Um, so it, it, was, it was one of the guys that was a little bit younger, and he's like, are you sure people are going to know the reference here? I was like, come on, it's Reservoir Dogs. Of course people will know the reference. Um, but I think this is the way that uh, 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 this looks today, right? I think kind of old school classic IT was really a Mexican standoff, right? And that's a classic scene where you know, people are pointing you know, guns at each other ready to go. Um, it, it's got to move into a place where and by the way, there is no way to actually flatten these organizations. We saw this wave, you know, three to four years ago, there was, a, there was kind of a big movement to where, you know, DevOps is not a job, it's a feeling. You know, it's a, you know if, we, if we all believe that it's, the, you know, that it's the spirit of the air that we breathe, then, it, you know, then, then nobody has that job, and it's just all the things that we do. People don't need job titles, and you know, nobody has DevOps in their job description. But that's not practical. You know, we see the DevOps teams all the time. And on those DevOps teams, they're not purely staffed with developers. Sometimes they're operations people that are learning to code and, and, and vice versa. So I think uh, in a lot of ways, it's about making these three uh, teams work well together and making sure they can pull off the heist. Um, so um, if, if you take nothing else away from the session is that if you don't get this right, chances are you're still dragging your organization down and chances are you're still slowing you down, right? So here's the rules of the road that we would suggest, right? Um, first of all, I would suggest that you guys kind of you know, look adopt as many of these as you think are practical. But this is what we do at Alert Logic, for example. One thing is no random opinions, right? Uh, ideally, everybody works from the same blueprint. So when we're sitting there and and discussing how something should be done, it should be from the same sheet of music and it should be from the same. Uh, reference architecture, right? That architecture should not just explain how things are plugged together. That's not a, you know, just because you can produce a topology map of how the network links are connected and how your cloud infrastructure is deployed, it doesn't mean that's your blueprint. Your blueprint should declare for you wh what kind of assets you have, what kind of applications and frameworks you run on top of it, what types of data you're actually, um, you're actually uh, storing in, the, in these environments, how you're managing it. Uh, Joey's a big advocate for making sure that you don't get kind of fixated on the fact that it's just a bunch of applications. There's a lot of, of, of functions like identity management and so on that affect uh, the governance for those applications, right? Yeah, Misha, and, and one other thing there too is we have to have a feedback mechanism. We have to have a way for our teams to provide input, right? So, people that are in the field, that are in the trenches, that are doing this work day in and day out, if we've developed blueprints or guardrails or whatever you want to call them, uh, that don't necessarily work the way that they're prescribed, or maybe there are some certain exceptions and things like that, we need to make sure that we have an input mechanism where the team can do kind of after-action reports or after-action reviews like we do with security incident response, for example, where we can continually improve our blueprints as we go along, continuous improvement through all layers. Yeah. Um, the second rule is, I would trade out the general set of security controls for very specific controls, kind of purpose-built for that blueprint. And I'll give you a really practical example, and I think these guys made a right decision. We had a customer that 
uh, was very fast moving. It was, a, it was a media company, and they were pushing major uh, applications. They were built on pretty vulnerable platforms, in all honesty, right? A lot of times, you know, when, when it's a media company and what they're doing is content uh, deployments, a lot of times it's either, you know, WordPress or Drupal. The applications are actually fairly complex, but the platform is open source and in a lot of ways easy to, to break into. There's a lot of vulnerabilities out for it, yet ultimately they concluded that the only control they really need to have in place uh, is a WAF, and not just a WAF, but really something they can help them do virtual patching for those particular platforms. And one of the big reasons was because um, they, they, they were so tightly controlled on each instance, and they, their, their, their data flows were so tightly uh, narrowed to, to only the communication that needed to happen, that their only real attack vector at the end of the day was that core application that they were running, and ultimately because they changed that code every two weeks, it wasn't enough time to actually bring up a proper WAF and tune it. Virtual patches were the right solution for them, right? And in that case, even though kind of every ounce of my training said, no, you defend some depth, you gotta buy a bunch of stuff, you gotta deploy, you know, like layers of defense. In that case, that was actually the right answer, right? The virtual patches for that particular deployment, because of all the competency controls they've built throughout that, that blueprint, was the right solution because it made it lightweight and it made them actually be able to work in, in a way that, that needed to be supported, right? Their teams were saying, look, our marketing campaigns are gonna change every, every two weeks. If you can change your controls that quickly, have at it, but if you can't, we need a more flexible security solution, otherwise none of this really works. Right? You're absolutely right, and when you look at customization of those platforms themselves or customizations of plugins that are custom in and of themselves, that really exacerbates the issue when you're talking about you know, issues that come out weekly or bi-weekly or bi-monthly. Uh, you can kind of feel like you're on, the, on their hamster wheel of patching WordPress and all of the plugins and things like that. So it takes a really aggressive security program uh, and a lot of innovation to make sure that you can protect those platforms uh, in production. Uh, this next one's going to be pretty contentious, and I, I don't think everybody will agree with me, but I'm not a big fan of security gateways and kind of overlay networks, right? And for one big reason is because they're difficult to uh, deploy. I mean, a, a lot of times, the, you know, security gateways are deployed in a way that you deploy them once and hopefully you never have to redeploy them again. You deploy a big one because you know that you're going to have to autoscale at some point and so on and so forth. But they're a pretty terrible fit for immutable uh, infrastructure, right? Those environments where it's uh, cattle, not pets, where you're actually, you know, shooting infrastructure as soon as you need to go refresh it, as soon as there's a new code deployment, that type of model that usually breaks down. This is kind of the, the big culture wars that security teams get into, and they'll say, look, I've, I'm used to using a you know, massive security gateway, and I'm gonna have to shove all my traffic through it. The DevOps team, and, and especially the development team, pushes back and says, that's not gonna help, help me autoscale the way I need to autoscale, right? That's just not gonna work for me. So again, this is one of those big architectural decisions, ideally, that becomes part of your blueprint conversation, right? Because if you can kind of rationalize that, that, that discussion, and ultimately, I think some people will come to an answer and say, look, just because of a lot of good reasons, we're gonna have to go with the security gateway. But that's one of those core kind of beliefs that all three teams have to come to agreement on. Otherwise, they're gonna be feuding forever about which tools are the right tools, how should they work, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, periodic audits, right? Um, not a huge fan of those either, right? Uh, again, the model, I just talked to somebody from a very, very large um, uh, financial organization, and his main challenge is there's, it's such a large organization, there's literally a team dedicated to just auditing um, the state of vulnerabilities on all the infrastructure. I mean, this team is, you know, feels helpless, right? Uh, they run vulnerability scanners, 
those vulnerability scanners uh, essentially produce reports. Those reports are useless the moment the development team pushes out new infrastructure, right? So, you know, they're flying blind, right? Every time, you know, the more the, the dev team moves quickly, the more they get blind to the fact that what infrastructure is even running out there, what does my network look like, where, where are the flaws, did the IP addresses change, making my vulnerability reports uh, useless. I think security testing has to be part of the regression uh, uh, testing framework, right? Ideally, your um, code pipeline is the first place where you do your, uh, your audits, not the last place, but the first place. We do this internally. For example, with us, if there is a higher critical vulnerability, and we, you know, we happen to sell a vulnerability scanner that does this, but what we do in our deployments is, if there's high critical vulnerability, uh, those automated deployments come to a halt and they don't go forward, right? Uh, as a result, very quickly, you know, within a couple of months of implementing that as a standard policy, we kind of came to a point where we had no major vulnerabilities in production anymore because developers kind of accepted that, look, I don't want to have these major uh, flaws. I should be treating each one of those as a SAV1 bug if there is infrastructure shipping with underlying flaws. And I'll give you an example of what, what I would consider to be a SAV1 vulnerability, right? The, um, the Apache Struts vulnerability that took down Equifax, you know, CVSS 10 vulnerability, that's as good as a SAV1 bug to me, right? Uh, just because it's not impacting your functionality on day one doesn't mean that that uh, breach is not gonna take you down for a month, for example, right? To me, that's a definitely a severity one uh, problem and that should, be ha that should halt the deployment. They should address that issue before it gets deployed out there, right? And, and, and that really kind of ties into the, the, the last point I wanted to make, which is you really have to treat this as part of your testing infrastructure. Start your security process when the code is still getting built in pre-production environments. Make sure it's consistent all the way into production deployments. Make sure you're using kind of common tools. So the teams that are trying to kind of align together and saying, look, I have one set of reports that says one thing, I have another set of reports that says something else. I think it's fine to have those tools be separate as long as you can agree that you can trust both of them. So why is it important uh, to work um, with, first of all, the same set of facts, but also the same set of uh, objective facts and a blueprint uh, that everybody can agree on? I think, for, I think a lot of people misunderstand just how bad our perception of scale and uh, especially if threat is, right? A lot of times we really don't have a good sense for what a threat landscape looks like. Uh, this is something that, uh, it, like, I'm embarrassed to say, I didn't actually know this until recently. So on maps, Russia looks very large, which makes sense, because Russia is a very dangerous adversary. So of course you'd want to draw it much larger, right? Now, in terms of mass, land mass, it's actually not as large as it appears to be on a map. In fact, it's, you know, it, it kind of barely, you know, it, it just kind of overlays nicely over Africa. Africa is way larger uh, than Russia. And yet, you know, if you look at an, on a map, Africa looks smaller by comparison, right? I think this is very analogous to, uh, analogous to the way that our security conversations go, right? We overemphasize some threats and we underemphasize others. I think a lot of times we don't really know what we're protecting because we're not trying to construct these blueprints well enough, right? So here's, um, you know, here's my, my uh, uh, approach for blueprint uh, uh, construction. First of all, you gotta, uh, you kind of, you gotta enumerate your assets, right? And, uh, and the only things you gotta really understand on these slides, because there's a lot of graphics here, is look, just draw up the assets that you're protecting, right? And, and you know, I would construct as many blueprints as makes sense logically, depending on what kind of applications you're building, right? One of my first questions to kind of all security people and all DevOps people is, hey, 
what does your development team use? Uh, did they use a consistent set of uh, uh, frameworks? Did they use a consistent set of uh, development tools? Or is it kind of all over the place? The answer is usually it's all over the place. Now, when you look under the hood, it's not exactly true. There's usually, you know, kind of three to four major frameworks. You know, there's places that kind of half of their code is in .NET. They use a little bit of PHP in some places because they're ancient and they have to. And, uh, and then some of their stuff is really new and, it re and, it's, and it's serverless, which frankly requires a completely different blueprint. The way you would, you would uh, secure serverless environments is radically different. Those are possibly three different blueprints, right? Uh, you know, there's some you know, three -tier, classic three-tier architecture with, uh, with uh, a lot of apps that rely on uh, relational databases. There's some new serverless code. You can draw up these blueprints and, and really kind of separate them and say, look, we're going to protect these blueprints in a different way for each blueprint, right? Now, the next step is to kind of identify what the most relevant threats against these blueprints are, right? And this is, um, this is probably the hardest part of this because that requires somebody in your organization understanding what, what, the, what, the, what the relevant threats might be, right? So, you know, not every company can afford a threat intelligence function. Not every company has somebody that can look at, at a blueprint and say, look, I know exactly how an attacker might come after this set of assets, right? But that's essentially what you gotta do, right? You gotta be able to say, look, if I have, um, I'll give you a, a good example for, you know, kind of where I think the, the real threat is in, in some environments, right? There's a lot of SaaS companies out there that are over 10 years old. I've never met a, a, you know, a company that's a SaaS company that's over 10 years old that is not a classic three-tier architecture that has a relational database. Even if they have a new architecture they're moving towards to, all their customers are still on their ancient code, right? So that organization is going to get broken into either through a SQL injection flaw or something that's, that's, um, that's a flaw in their PHP code or in their uh, .NET code, right? That's, that's, those are usually the most common vectors. It doesn't mean that those are the only vectors out there. Obviously, brute force attacks are still gonna be an issue. Obviously, if somebody's able to kind of compromise your credentials, you're still gonna get broken into using that, that method. Attackers don't discriminate. They'll, they'll attack you using any number of avenues. But ultimately, because there's so much of the, uh, of the ancient code out there that's been around for a while, nobody remembers who wrote it, and because there's relational databases, overwhelmingly, that's gonna be kind of a hotspot, right? Attackers are, are gonna look for that, they're gonna find it, and that requires a certain set of controls, right? You can't protect those things using endpoint security agents, for example, right? They're not gonna help. So here's um, what it looks like, and uh, Joey, if you don't mind, let me advance through this, because yeah. I think this is kind of a build slide. So um, this is one way to think about the, the cloud attack surface. And this is, again, for especially for environments where if you don't feel like you understand what your application stack looks like, right? All the way from kind of what your cloud environment looks like to what operating systems or containers are running, all the way to development frameworks that your developers are using. This is kind of the long tail of any application being built. You know, this is where for Equifax, they should have known that kind of Apache Struts is not a trivial framework for them. That's a mission critical framework that deserves a whole lot of attention. The trends that we see there is that first of all, attacks kind of span that entire uh, entire stack. But the hotspots are at the application layer. Um, I think you know 75% of the incidents we see in our security operations center are web related, and that there's a reason for that. There's a lot of exposed uh, uh, flaws out there. If there's custom code, a lot of times it's custom code that gets targeted, not as the first step, but as the second step, right? First, first step is always go after the known vulnerabilities in the components. Second step is look for kind of easy to exploit vectors in the code. Uh, if you can get somebody's credentials and replay them, I mean, we see 16% of our incidents are still brute force attacks. Brute force attacks are ancient, right? And uh, you know, you, you have to look at them 
Uh, and you know, a lot of times people don't realize the brute force attacks don't just get executed against your kind of traditional directory systems. It's the applications and application management uh, UIs themselves that get brute forced a lot. Like one of the incidents we saw was against Apache Tomcat, and it was the web management UI that was getting brute forced. You got to be able to identify those the situations, right? So you have to kind of look at all of this. And Joe, you had some comments you wanted to add to this because I think you know this is very much an application stack centric view of the threats. It's obviously doesn't cover the full gamut of what attackers are, are coming after, right? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, the application stack or the layer seven attack service is critically important, right? We look at uh, the data breach investigation reports and things like that from security companies that come out, and they're still telling us that web application attacks are at the very top, right? And obviously, Misha's organization sees the same thing from an incident response and, and IDS perspective. But there's a couple of other elements of uh, attack service that we can't forget about. And one of those is identity attack service. So how many of you have access and secret keys in your organization that are older than 90 days? Have you ever seen any that are 800 days old? 900 days old? I have. Uh, where, where have those keys been? Uh, who's the steward of those keys? What's the chain of custody of those keys? Uh, what code have they been added to? What GitHub repos have they been uploaded to? Et cetera. Um, IAM users. Rotation of passwords, the use of MFA for I think console that was the GitHub, access and API. Uh, I mean, the, the latest uh, Uber breach, right? That wasn't that the GitHub exposing. There's a been bunch a number of breaches code, right? yeah, yeah. through that. Um, you know, Chris Vickery actually finds all kinds of stuff on S3 and in GitHub and every place else. But identity attack service is critically important. So for AWS, if you look at the CIS AWS benchmark, the foundations benchmark that came out in early 16. Uh, that thing is really useful, and it gives you the basic minimum account settings and things that you need to um, take into account for managing identity attack service. The other thing is network attack service. So Misha was talking about identifying your assets. Where are your assets? Your assets include a lot more than the application stack themselves. What about our jump boxes that we're using to get in and securely manage those networks? Uh, what about the, the NAT boxes, the DNS boxes, the insert box here that has to run on infrastructure as a service because platform as a service or something else isn't available. Every single one of those devices that are on the external facing internet is part of your attack service. And attackers are going to find those. Uh, they're scanning our external environment all of the time. Uh, so we have to manage that. We have to manage that through security groups and various other tools and things like that. We have to, you know, if slash zero shouldn't have access to a particular service on a particular box, then why are we allowing that to happen? We need, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, but we need an enforcement mechanism or a governance mechanism to make sure that we don't shoot ourselves in the foot and that we automatically manage our attack surface and the threats to it over time and on a continuous basis. So I, I think everything that Joe and I are talking about has to become part of the blueprint that you assemble. The controls you put in place then have to match that uh, blueprint and that attack surface. And a lot of times I don't necessarily see that happening. The conversation ends up happening in a very different way, which is you know, the three groups that we, that we identified here get together. One of them says, I use this vendor. One of them says, I use that vendor. And the other one says, I saw this really cool vendor that has machine learning, and I think we should use them instead, right? So it becomes very much a vendor and a product-driven conversation. It's not driven by the needs they have. It's certainly not driven by the, by the attack vectors. Um, you know, there, there's very few organizations where I've seen them actually have really crisp answers for, I know exactly what my application consists of, I know exactly, you know, you got to be honest and look at yourself in the mirror and say, 
some of my management practices are just not that great yet, and, and that means my attack surface is wider. And uh, I know Joey's going to talk about how you know Citrix is not perfect. I'll admit it that Alert Logic is not perfect, right? We're still going through some of those growing pains, and we still have a long, you know, kind of a list of things that we're, you know, we're, we're kind of got to root out. We have compensated controls around them, but frankly, the reason they're in place is because you know, some some of the management practices are just not as smart as they should be, right? So you got to be able to look at that and say, look, here's exactly what we're trying to get done here. And then I think the conversation gets much easier. Then I think the, the three teams that we identified all of a sudden snap into alignment. You're speaking about objective, uh, objective facts and you're not talking about opinions anymore, right? So um, some kind of quick uh, hints for how you may want to have this conversation. Here are, the, here are the factors that you may want to kind of tease out of your blueprint once you start putting it together, right? If you have hybrid environments, and this is a common mistake that I see, I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, I think my AWS environment is pretty, pretty good. It is so locked down, it runs the most modern code. We don't even have web servers. We have products that don't run web servers, um, right? And you know, essentially all of the code runs out of S3. There are direct API calls, there's no relational database. You know, it's, it, security-wise, it's actually architected pretty well, but ask them, is this, the, only, is this the, the entirety of the way this application works? And quickly you realize, well, not exactly. There's, you know, there's kind of a you know, microservice that still has to talk to our ancient you know, legacy code base, which is actually hosted somewhere else, and maybe it's in a hosted data center. We don't really know who runs it because it's a managed service. So we, you know, we, we just try not to touch it. Like, as long as it doesn't go down, it's still good. Look, your attack service is cumulative, right? It's not, you know, it's not the new stuff you deployed in AWS. It's whatever you're connected to all over the place, right? So you got to look at that blueprint in an honest way and, and, and not protect for just the components that you recently brought up. And this is the most common um, mistake that I think our developers make internally. Um, they're kind of overwhelmingly concerned about the latest code that they've written. <clears throat> I mostly get concerned about the legacy code that, that you know, somebody wrote 10 years ago, still runs, it was written pretty well, nobody remembers who wrote it, you know, the, we try not to touch it all that much. So, you know, that's usually where the attackers go. They don't go after the new code. I mean, Lambda's fun. We write a lot of Lambda code. I've never met an attacker that knows how to attack Lambda yet. You know, the, the, that's just not a, you know, that's not part of somebody's toolkit at this point. They're gonna go after PHP first and foremost, right? So, you know, quick hints here for kind of what you wanna look for, right? If there is a relational database anywhere, right? SQL injection, injection is gonna be a major, uh, major vector, right? Uh, reach out to me after this, after this presentation. I'm happy to send you the deck so you have this uh, available to you, right? So the final step is actually building this coverage model, right? Once you figure out what's important to you threat-wise, then you can say, look, we gotta get protection in place for OS Top 10 because in this particular case, we're talking about a classic three-tier architecture. Uh, the other blueprint we have is microservices-based and that requires a very different approach. For us, SQL injection is gonna be a major major flaw. So for us, the WAF is not uh, optional. We're gonna have to have that. Maybe before antivirus, I think antivirus is one of those technologies that probably doesn't really have much of a place uh, in cloud deployments, finally Gartner even started saying that you know that that uh, AV deployments are not all that useful, right? So this is the way this particular blueprint looks like, but everybody should look slightly different, right? And everybody should kind of rationalize it to their particular needs. You know, one thing you can do is kind of say, look, what we're going to build is the full stack security coverage, right? And this is the way we do it at Alert Logic, right? Our approach is to say, look, we're going to try to I, I eliminate as much as we can. 
uh, and, and filter out as much of the attacks at the pre-compromise stage, filter out as much of the malicious traffic, identify all the assets, make sure they were kind of diligent about rooting out vulnerabilities. That really shrinks your attack surface more than anything else, right? Uh, um, you know, for a lot of um, for a lot of things that um, that um, that you're going to be doing. It's the blocking and tackling, right? It's really basic things like misconfigured S3 buckets, right? That will lower your attack surface, right? If, you're, if you don't feel like you have control over your exposures and vulnerabilities, first of all, in your cloud infrastructure layer, but then all the way up the stack, I would argue that kind of getting fancy with, uh, with kind of really advanced attack vectors isn't the right time. You gotta, start, you gotta start with the basics first, right? Now ultimately, you wanna be able to collect as much data as you can. I mean, ideally, you, you're not just looking at any one layer, so I would be very hesitant to kind of steer somebody towards a solution or one product that looks at kind of one layer of their infrastructure stack and says, this is the most important <clears throat> layer. It's not like that, right? You gotta be able to identify these attacks across the entire attack surface and be able to generate incidents that actually make sense, right? Some of these breaches that we see um, in the news and some of the breaches that we help customers avoid are not something you can filter out. These are not things that you can proactively block. So you gotta be able to identify, you gotta be able to monitor it. If you have a SIM, make sure the SIM actually delivers action incidents for you, right? Just because you're collecting that data doesn't mean much, right? So what I wanted to close out were two, uh, two things, right? One is um, the cloud security maturity model, right? Um, this, you're not gonna find this in, in Gartner and Forrester presentations. This is my own, I made this one up. Um, so look, there's kind of four categories of cloud adopters that we see out there. First of all, uh, we still see you know, people out there saying, look, a lot of my code and a lot of my applications and workloads are legacy. So what we did was a lift and uh, ship uh, deployment. There's nothing wrong with that. That's actually the fastest way to get out of a traditional data center. Get your hands on a cloud environment, actually start interacting with and starting building code the right way. Uh, we see a lot of people doing that and it's not, it's not a, a wrong thing to do. Now oftentimes what they end up doing is kind of bringing legacy security practices and security tools along with them. There probably isn't the right solution for the long term, but I think it's totally fine as you're getting started, right? The next natural step, I think, is probably using some of the common tools that AWS and, and other cloud providers make available to you. There was one announced just yesterday called GuardDuty. Config is a phenomenal service. Um, CloudTrail, right? There's a ton of data that AWS delivers that frankly wasn't available in our traditional data centers. I would make sure that you can collect it understand it and make sure it actionable before you start getting, uh, getting advanced with anything else, right? Uh, that telemetry, right, and, and that kind of insight into your specific cloud environment that AWS will give you is critical, and it's one of the first things I would do before I go and, and start to kind of stack up a bunch of vendors. Now, if you are gonna bring somebody in, uh, in to help, have somebody kind of take over that data and help you visualize it, manage it, make it more actionable, and so on, but definitely start, like for example, right, if you're deploying really complex anti-malware technologies that you know they have you know uh, really advanced models but you're not using cloud trail I think you're doing it wrong right that's just a wrong order of operations right the next step is kind of moving towards cloud native models right and that's where you start to get out of your kind of overlay networks and uh, appliances doing security and you start to move to environments where immutable infrastructure is it can actually be deployed very quickly security is part of your golden image it's seamless to developers. Developers don't have to know that it's there. I mean, ultimately, our job is to make sure that development teams can push code without slowdowns. 
and securely, right? That means the security infrastructure is architected well enough to where it's seamless and it doesn't break, it doesn't become brittle. If it requires you know, post-deployment massaging or conference calls or support tickets, it's probably not quite ready yet, right? There's still work to do, right? And the last step is really making sure that you're doing the full lifecycle management, right? And that's where you're doing it in pre-production, you're doing code scanning, and you're making sure that code that's not secure never, never even makes it into production. That's the kind of the holy grail. Uh, at Alert Logic, we're kind of right between three and four, right? We're at the point now where we're starting to automate a lot of our deployment processes, and we're trying to bake in a lot of our security jobs into our, uh, into our deployment pipeline and, and becoming pretty successful with it. I think Joey is at a slightly different stage right now, right? Yeah. So, um, so I wanted to kind of close out my presentation and make sure that Joey has enough time to go through his experience by announcing a new product that, uh, that leverages the guard duty uh, uh, service that Amazon released yesterday. Uh, this is, the service is called Cloud Inside Essentials. Uh, our objective with the service is to make sure that you have an ability to, first of all, identify exposures in AWS environments and find those misconfigurations the easiest way possible. And we wanted to price it at a really low price point because we, we meet a lot of customers that have a lot of AWS accounts. I mean, we have a customer that has 2,000 AWS accounts because each development team has their own account, right? That means that if you're going to audit those and you're going to visualize what that topology looks like, there's a lot of accounts that have to get lit up. So we wanted to make sure that nobody gets kind of blocked out from using this. But even more important, it supports the new Guard Duty service. Guard Duty is a phenomenal new service. It takes a lot of the telemetry that Amazon has been publishing for the last couple of years. It's, uh, it's CloudTrail logs. Uh, a lot of it is, is right now driven by um, by AWS flow logs, and they're turning it into, into actionable incidents. Now, what we do with those incidents is we actually um, add our recommendations to them. We have a threat intelligence team that looks at a lot of cloud environments. With about 4,000 customers, we see a lot of commonalities um, for these attacks. So each one of these guard duty findings will actually get a set of extended recommendations. So, you, so it's not just going to tell you, here's what happened. It'll also tell you, here's what you want to go do about it, and here's the action you may want to take. And if that action is actually related to one of the misconfigurations we found, we'll highlight it for you and say, look, the reason you're getting attacked on this particular vector is because there's a misconfiguration in S3 or in, in one of your other environments, right? So it's a great service. I hope you guys give it a shot. Please use the, the AWS credits that we gave you to try it out. It's a marketplace today. So Joey, the floor is yours. Thanks, Misha. So what I'm going to do today is kind of talk to you a little bit about our journey, uh, and I'm going to share some lessons learned with you. Uh, so I was talking with um, Derek at the, uh, before the session started. And Derek's just getting started, so he came to this session hoping to gather some information and make sure that he can learn from others' mistakes as they begin their journey to the cloud. So from a maturity perspective, um, we are, on Misha's chart, we're in between two and three. Uh, and I'm the harshest critic of our maturity level uh, at our company. Uh, if there's any Citrix people in the room, I'm sure you probably disagree with what I think our maturity level is. But uh, uh, we are creeping into three, and uh, we're continuing the journey. And I think we've got a lot of foundational work that's done, a lot of blueprints, guardrails, if you want to call them that. I actually love that term, guardrails. Um, so we're, we're moving forward. One of the first things that we needed to do is establish communications. Communications is hyper important um, for security, DevOps, ops, all of these folks, right? Because um, Misha was talking about the customer of theirs that has thousands of accounts. We have over a thousand accounts um, because when we started our journey to the cloud, 
basically leadership said, hey, we're going to the cloud. Just use your credit card, go start an account, throw some stuff up there, learn it. And then some of those accounts turned into production accounts or staging accounts or things like that. Ultimately, a few years ago when we decided to get a handle on this, we actually had to go to finance to identify all of the accounts that we had because the only system of record or inventory that we had of those accounts were maintained by the financial analysts that were having to reimburse all of our staff for those costs. Uh, so as you can imagine, cost optimization was nowhere to be found. Uh, we had carte blanche to spin up whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, wherever we wanted, in whatever region. So it was, uh, it was pretty much a mess. So, you know, as we started to kind of get a handle on that, one of the things that we needed to do is we needed to set expectations, and we needed to kind of figure out where everyone was in their journey. And one of the first things that we noticed is everybody wanted to put labels on everybody else, DevSecOps, SecDevOps. So the first thing that my peers in leadership would ask me when we sat at the table and talked about how we were going to get this done and what problems we had and how we were going to solve those problems is, what do you guys call yourself, SecDevOps or DevSecOps or something else? And I said, none of the above. We call ourselves security people that give a damn. So let's just figure out how to move forward. And the problem that I have with labels is they come with stereotypes. And we see this in our personal lives and in everyday social life, right? Uh, and that's part of the problem. So when these guys came to us and they said, you know, hey, we're DevOps or we're site reliability engineers and all those kinds of things, you know, I looked at what the industry considered to be DevOps, what the industry considered to be site reliability engineers, and I didn't see those people across the table from me. What I saw were a bunch of developers who were calling themselves DevOps because they got CICD religion and, uh, and decided that you know, that was their mantra and they were going to go forward. The reality, at least for us in our company, is that very few of those developers had any operational experience whatsoever in the cloud, much less legacy IT infrastructure and things like that. Folks, that is a recipe for disaster. Developers that th call themselves DevOps and think that they have an ops acumen because they call themselves DevOps are creating major threats in your organization. I know this because we, we address these things every single day, and we've had to automate everything that we do. So Misha was talking about audits, continuous audits, and doesn't really care for those. I'm telling you, they are a necessary evil. We have to do that. And that's because we have new developers coming online all the time. Their skills are not created equal in AWS. A lot of these developers don't know the first thing about using any service correctly, and they've forgotten the term RTFM. I don't know what happened to that. Uh, you know, I use it religiously because I want to remind people that, hey, there is, there is documentation. AWS actually has ridiculously good documentation. There is literally no reason for anyone to be ignorant about how to use uh, AWS services and products in a best practice way, right? So communications, uh, and that starts with setting expectations. And the first thing that I did instead of setting expectations with my peers and say, hey, we want you to do this, is I asked them what their expectations of us were. What can we do for you? Because when we set up my organization, we set it up as a service management organization, okay? So we're all architects, every single person. I have 20 people on my team. We're all security people. We have some cloud ops people too. Uh, legacy IT ops people that are learning cloud ops and things like that. Everyone's at least an architect associate. Uh, we have a bunch of people that are getting sysops and, and uh, development certificates as well. We have a large automation team, and we automate anything that we have to do more than one time gets automated. That's my rule. 
Uh, and, and if I hear that anybody is doing something ridiculous uh, manually more than, more than a couple of times, I get pretty irate with their managers and say, why have we not automated that yet? Get it done, okay? So setting expectations, being willing to reset those expectations when you find that you're able, not able to meet them together, or there's some kind of arbitrary or extraneous uh, entity or fact or thing that's happening uh, that you didn't realize was there. Um, responsibilities. Um, one of the things that we set expectations for, shared responsibility model. Everybody in the cloud, right, shared responsibility has been around forever. AWS has a great responsibility model. They build their security practice around it, et cetera. And I adopted this for us when we set up our service management portfolio because one of the first things that I would hear from anybody when we were starting to kind of conceive uh, my team and, and how we were going to move forward is, what are you going to do for us? Not what can we do for you, but what are you going to do for us? So it became very, very clear to me very early on that I needed to define exactly what our team was going to do. Uh, these are our responsibilities, these are your responsibilities, and these are shared responsibilities. In other words, take incident management, for example, security incident response and management, all right? So I'm the incident commander for my entire company. Every single incident that we have comes across my desk. Um, we have comms officers that were on my team. We have first responders that are embedded with each product team that we have, uh, et cetera. But my team controls incident management. All right, so there's a shared responsibility there. We own incident management, okay? But the product teams that we support, they have first responders that contribute to incident response specific to their particular environments, products, and things like that. Um, guardrails, blueprints, things like that. So early on in my career, Steve Miller, kudos to you. He was the first director that I had in the enterprise a little over 15 years ago that took the time to coach me into out of being a no security professional. I've been a security professional for nearly 20 years. It's all I've done, all different kinds of stuff, AppSec, MobileSec, CloudSec, you name it. But one of the very first and most critical lessons that he taught me is that my job was to securely enable the business, not say no, okay? And one of the walls or gates that I had to break down at Citrix when I arrived is that security people, and there's a bunch of us in the room, we know we've got a terrible reputation because our predecessors were people of no, Captain No. They used to call me Captain No at JCPenney before I actually learned that lesson from Mr. Miller. And no, not the Steve Miller band, by the way. We had lots of jokes about the Steve Miller band, but that's not him, he's a completely different guy. Um, but I learned a very valuable lesson at that time, and, and I became an enabler at that point, and I stopped saying no, and I started saying, yes, we can meet your need, but we can't do it the way that you want to do it because that's going to expose the company to threat or your application to threat. So let us show you some options, and let's figure out from a compromise perspective how we can move forward, okay? So one of the first things that I had to do at Citrix, at Citrix is set that expectation, because literally the first VP that I talked to, he was like, oh, you're the security guy. He goes, I hate security guys. They always tell us no. They always say, no, you can't do that, no, you can't do that. And I said, look, I, I don't know who you've been dealing with in the past, I said, but I'm not that kind of security person. I said, uh, so just forget about all of the you know, stereotypes and things like, the, like that that you have about security people. I want to work with you to get this done securely, but in a cost-effective way, in a productive way, in a way that enables your teams to remain innovative, creative, et cetera, right? Because that's what made Citrix what a great company, the great company that it is today. 
So we finally broke down those walls as well. You guys are going to need to do that, um, the security people that are trying to integrate now with DevOps teams, cloud ops teams, et cetera. Reach across the aisle and let them know, I'm more interested in governance than control. I'm not going to tell you, no, you can't do that, you know, and set up all these maze of gates and things like that. What I'm going to do is develop a set of blueprints or guardrails that say, if you want to operate in the cloud securely, here's the minimum things that you need to do. Okay, from a network security perspective, here are my expectations. Outside of those expectations, have a ball. Do what you have to do and let's get this done. Let's go make some money, et cetera. Okay, but we have to set those expectations and be willing to modify those on the fly uh, as things change, as the climate changes. And then finally, I've mentioned this already, automate all the things, okay? From a security perspective, um, one of the things that, uh, that we do, so we talked about attack surface. So we have attack surface automation that runs across our entire cloud environment. So we use serverless, probably 90% of the applications my team writes are all serverless. Uh, and we have several applications, if you will, I'll call them applications, that run. So attack surface. We're monitoring attack surface on, a, I think we're doing eight hour intervals now because we do deployments all the time. We do redeployments. Most of our teams are on three week sprints. So they redeploy entire customer environments and things like that on three week sprints. So we have to be agile. We have to be as agile as the teams are that we're supporting. So we have attack surface automation that runs continually. We drop those JSON results into a DynamoDB table. We upload some stuff to Splunk. We do some crunching. We look and see what we have, and we build a list or a table of things that we don't like from an attack surface perspective. From a network attack surface perspective, some of the things we don't like, we don't like to see slash zero as a network source, unless it's going to 80443, another well-known WebSocket, something like that. Anything remote access should be restricted to Citrix egress space. Well, but I work from home. I don't care. You're going to VPN into Citrix first, and then you're going to go there. We've got a hybrid cloud gateway that we've built uh, that we're getting ready to actually move all of our jump hosts into the hybrid cloud gateway. And you're only going to be able, and you'll be able to get to that hybrid cloud gateway from anywhere in the world, slash zero, but we're using software-defined networking and a really cool uh, virtualization platform uh, from Skyport that we just learned about. So we're designing that now, so that's going to improve. Um, there's various other things. Uh, from a network attack surface. High threat ports. Um, do you guys monitor for database ports on the web? MongoDB, MySQL, those things should not be on the internet. It's way too easy to put RDS on the internet. We find, we find our, uh, the scan that ran yesterday, we have 90 new RDS instances on the internet. 90. <laughs> it makes me cringe. MongoDB, Chris Vickery got famous off of finding open MongoDB databases that didn't require authentication in AWS. <laughs> okay, so those are some of the things that we look for from a network security perspective. Um, so what we've determined, and uh, this is one of those things, so uh, Lee, I was talking to Lee. Lee, thank you for your comments. So Lee's looking for, they are a healthcare company, and they've got a ton of PHI, personal health information. They've got extremely sensitive data, and they want to figure out how to protect that stuff well, we're kind of going into that now. So I'm going to talk to you. All these assessments that we've done, and I was in consulting before I came to Citrix, all the assessments that I've done, that my teams have done, et cetera, over the years, 95% um, of all cloud security issues can be rolled up into five top-level categories, okay? And let's go to the next slide, Misha. Identity and access management. 
Okay, we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about attack surface. Uh, IAM users, IAM roles, things like that. I've got one product team that had uh, the first audit that we did, they had over 600 service accounts that were IAM users. Every one of them had a password. Every one of them had an access and secret key provisioned. Over 600. Guess how long the oldest one was for access and password? I'm not going to tell you. It was way long, way longer than a year since the passwords and access and secret keys have been uh, rotated on those. Guess where those keys were? They were in Ansible uh, configuration scripts. Uh, they were in GitHub. They were all over the place. It took us months to clean all of that stuff up. 600 service accounts. I said, hey, guys, how come you're not using IAM roles? Ah, you know, we know we ought to be using IAM roles, but eh, we started down this path. And, it, you know, then this new feature came up. You guys have a problem retiring security debt because of new features or new projects or new things? Well, hey, I'd rather work on this new cool stuff rather than retire this nasty legacy security debt, right? So we have that problem too. So identity and access management. Uh, network security is another one. I've talked about, notice those are number one and number two because those are the two attack surface pieces that I talked about uh, in addition to the application stack or layer seven attack surface. So network security. Network security is really cool and one of the easiest things to enforce from a governance perspective because you can automate the whole thing, which is exactly what we've done. We created a scan bot in Slack. We use Slack, by the way, for our principal communications with the teams that we support. Uh, we also have pager duty, so that's the, you know, oh crap kind of thing where you can call us. Um, but we use Slack primarily, so we built a number of bots in Slack, actually. So one of the bots that we built is called ScanBot. So the automation that we've built that does attack surface scanning, we've also built um, security assessments. So similar to what, what um, uh, Misha has created or, or talked about announcing, uh, announced just a moment ago, we've created infrastructure scanning code that goes through and it looks at, you know, it looks for S3 buckets that have anonymous access, all these kinds of things. Have you guys heard of the Security Monkey tool from Netflix or Cloudsploit? I don't know what their company is, but Cloudsploit. So we looked at those two open source projects. Both of them, if you've used them, you know they're incomplete, very incomplete, okay? Um, so they didn't meet our needs, so we said, what the hell, and we wrote our own. So that's what we're using, we, and it runs on a 24-hour basis, and again, we store all of those results, we pipe that stuff into Splunk, and then we do a bunch of, uh, you know, um, ninja stuff with it there. We do alerting through Slack, we do critical alerting through PagerDuty and things like that. Um, so we have a scan bot that, we, that, levered, that can leverage that automation that we built. So we put it in a channel, and we, in all channels actually, and we let any team run a scan of their own stuff anytime. Uh, all they have to do is make sure that we have their account number and we have a cross-account role set up for them. Remember, I mentioned earlier, we have over 1,000 accounts. This is why we automate every single thing that we do. Do you want to touch 1,000 accounts as a security person? And you're doing an audit? No, no. Anybody? Me either. Now, Joe, how often do those scans run? Do they run continuously or you run? Um, so the attack service scans run every eight hours. Um, the infrastructure security assessment scans run every 24 hours. Um, and, you know, we're continually updating those results. We have histograms and things like that. Uh, and then we have vulnerability scanning software as well, cloud-based vulnerability scanning so software. So I think that's doing it right. I think the, the, my point about periodic scans was for a lot of 
vulnerability assessment programs where you run a monthly scan mm. or even a weekly scan. That's oh. just that, that that's just way too late, right? Your 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 infrastructure gets refreshed quickly. Your resolution time's got to be, I think, less than five minutes. So, you know, that's what CloudTrail lets you do, right? CloudTrail mm. declares for you which assets are new and alive and and are up for scanning for in less than five minutes. So that's kind of the resolution time that we shoot for. And then it's kind of e either every 24 hours or when new infrastructure shows up, right? So because as soon as something is uh, in your environment, you want to be able to scan it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I was talking with Mary Beth uh, before the session about teamwork agility. She said that she was most interested in hearing about teamwork and agility. So we share all of the code, we share all the stuff, we put all of our stuff in an internal source code repo, um, and we invite our, the teams that we support to actually collaborate with us on that. So we say, hey, are these reports that you're getting useful, are these alerts that you're getting useful in Slack? Do you have to actually go somewhere else and, and look up things? Uh, or, or are we are we getting it done for you? And you know we've had a lot of people actually contribute code back to our stuff from the engineering teams to help us make things better. So that's one of the ways that that we are agile. We're we're more than happy to incorporate those kinds of changes. We do CI/CD in our team as well, uh, so we're more than happy to put that stuff out. And we do releases every day sometimes, um, you know, because we want to make sure that we're we're doing as much as we can to to remove threats from the environment. So uh, encryption and secrets management, that's number three. Uh, this stuff is all over the place. TLS certificates, TLS keys, encryption keys, master keys, uh, all those kinds of things. Um, that's absolutely critical, and we mess up there all the time. Um, it's so critical. You know, we're, we're, we've got people in the room that have PII concerns. They have PHI concerns, all those kinds of things. So we need, to, we need a better way to, to actually manage this. And we have to set up guardrails or blueprints so that our teams know what to expect. Visibility, visibility is king. Um, this is logging and monitoring. Does everybody have a pretty comprehensive logging and monitoring program? A couple people? So, you know, incident response, uh, problem determination for technical problems and things like that, it all begins with visibility. If we don't have visibility, then, then we really can't do anything. So logging and monitoring is super, super critical. Uh, and then operational readiness and maturity. Operational readiness and maturity is kind of the catch-all for everything else. Vulnerability management, patch management, uh, you know, DC, uh, BCP, DR, all those kinds of things, right? All the things that we need to do to run a successful, best practice-based organization. So let's go ahead and get to some lessons learned here. We've got a couple minutes left. So real quickly, um, let's start with the architecture lessons. So uh, we talked about lift and shift and the fact that it's a good way to get to the cloud real quickly. Uh, I agree with that. Um, the way that Citrix actually started in the cloud is through an acquisition. So Zen Mobile is uh, our, our enterprise mobility suite. And when we, uh, when we acquired that company, Zenprise was the company, when we acquired them, they had just moved their on-prem system to the cloud, just lock, stock, and barrel. Um, so uh, that team, uh, when we started uh, supporting them, they had over 800 VPCs. That's because they had a VPC per customer and they had redundant everything in each one of the VPCs. One of the lessons learned there, those guys didn't do any network planning at all. So, uh, so I'm talking about legacy IT practices here, network planning. <laughs> if you wanna use VPC peering or any other cool stuff, if you wanna leverage a core services style of architecture, where you put all your security gear, you know, your CICD gear, all that kind of stuff in a central location in a hub and spoke style of design, you can't do that if you have ridiculously overlapping network space throughout your entire environment. And uh, that's what we had with those guys. 
Um, plan ahead for growth. So that kind of goes to the network planning and all those kinds of things. Back in the day, you know, in the 90s and so forth, IT shops used to have dedicated capacity planning teams, and that's literally all they did was plan for capacity. Um, we don't, we, we kind of shoot from the hip in the cloud, don't we? I, there's, I'm not seeing a lot of capacity planning going on. It's kind of, you know, when we, uh, when we upgraded our log management platform and we started offering some additional stuff to people, I said, how much stuff are you logging? Mm. Well, how much stuff are you going to log next year? Mm. No capacity planning, no idea even what they had today, no visibility. Uh, don't use legacy over cloud when cloud is superior. Uh, so people try to, uh, you know, throw Suricata IDS and things like that up, up in the cloud. It's really difficult. There are commercial solutions that have been architected specifically to operate in the cloud. Uh, so uh, you know, use a cloud-native solution when it's appropriate. Don't try to put a square peg in a round hole. Uh, give ops a seat at the table. We talked a little bit about that. So one of the things that really, really makes me mad is when architects design something in a silo and then they throw it over the fence to ops and they say, there you go, it's your baby now, stinking and everything, um, you know, and, and now you have to manage it. So let's make sure they have a seat at the table. I, as a security guy, want a seat at the table. So uh, I believe in the golden rule. So anytime we're gonna do anything, we always invite the leaders uh, and their stakeholders to, to the table with us. And we say, hey, we're gonna roll out a new service. It could be a little bit intrusive in the beginning because we're gonna find stuff that we didn't find before and you guys are gonna have to fix it. So we're letting you know, you know, how can we make that the least painful for you, that kind of thing. And then be willing to start over. Um, so, you know, with the lift and shift of Zen Mobile and the 800 VPCs, what did we do? Well, the first, you know, we finally, <laughs> we didn't do it soon enough, but we finally decided to go rewrite it as a multi-tenant cloud-based application. And uh, pretty soon we're gonna only offer it in the cloud. And then finally, let's wrap up real quick with, uh, with some ops lessons and then we'll take some questions. Again, legacy IT practices, so um, don't discount legacy IT practices for monitoring and things like that. If you're having a difficult time developing a monitoring or logging strategy in the cloud, go talk to your friends in legacy IT and say, hey, how did you guys solve this problem? Um, visibility is king. Can I say that enough? Logging and monitoring, we have to have visibility. Uh, I have to have access into your cloud environments so I can see what you're doing wrong so that I can educate you. Okay, I'm not gonna tell you no, I'm not gonna berate you, I'm not gonna shame you. Well, unless I've told you two or three times and then I will probably publicly shame you. In fact, I have another bot, I'll tell you real quickly. Uh, we call it AuthBot. So we have a real problem with people using Citrix123 uh, as a password at Citrix. So we wrote a bot that scans every single system that listens on a WebSocket and tries to log in with Citrix123 and a bunch of other crappy passwords that we've seen, about a dozen or so. And anytime we get a hit on that and we successfully log in, we publicly shame the team whose resource that was in Slack in our threat advisories channel, which everyone is subscribed to. We say, Joey Pelequin, come on down. You're the winner of the stupid thing of the day. Anyway, so um, your mileage may vary on that. We have a pretty interesting organization, so we can get away with that. Um, standardized tooling, uh, you know, people, one of the problems we had is everybody was buying all different kinds of stuff everywhere. Somebody's gotta make a decision, and you need to do what's cost effective for your company. So, and obviously from an operations perspective, it makes sense to standardize. Eliminate silos, unify and centralize where you can. So we have a centralized cloud operations team, centralized security operations team, one throat to choke, well, two throats to choke. Um, you know, everybody knows where to go. Uh, decomplexify. Govern, do not control. As a security person, govern. 
okay? You're providing a service to your peers and to the people, your colleagues that you're working with internally. Govern, do not control, okay? And then finally, partner with procurement and finance. These guys are your friends. Even if they're not aware of what's going on today and you don't have cost management and cost optimization and things like that going on, you will get religion. Eventually the CFO or somebody is gonna go, what the hell is going on with our cloud costs? And then you're gonna start to have that conversation. So definitely partner with procurement and finance. Thank you very much, everyone. We hope that you got some uh, good information today. Yes, uh, thank you for your time, uh, really appreciate it. Um, there's not a session coming up in this room after this, so we do have time for questions. If anybody wants to ask something, uh, please come up. Yeah.